You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. So far this week, we have been laser focused on the crisis facing our healthcare system now. And as you know, things are not great. But there is a bigger reason we're tackling this subject than just the current problem. See, the subject of today's episode could have been any number of things that will increase the demand on a system that can't take it. Most experts say we are likely to see a resurgence of COVID this fall. Even if we don't, if you listen to this program, you know that we have already seen a wave of monkeypox and even in some places, a reemergence of polio. So I'm not going to bet against some other infectious disease messing with us over the next decade or two. But that almost doesn't matter. Because we are not confronting the crisis that we know is coming. Unless measures are taken to reduce the risks and delay the onset of the condition, close to 1.4 billion caregiver hours, the equivalent of more than 690,000 full-time jobs, will be required to support the 1.7 million Canadians who have dementia by 2050. As you might guess, we definitely do not have 690,000 full-time jobs ready to be filled so that we can properly care for our elders. So what will happen? Well, some of these people will first of all not have family doctors to go to when their symptoms begin to emerge. Some of them will end up in long-term care facilities that have no room for them and almost no nurses. And some of them will end up disoriented, in emergency rooms, waiting, with nobody to care for or advocate for them. And we are walking right into this. So forget whatever could potentially emerge to wreck our system. Forget about maybe threats. There is one right in front of us. We know it's coming. What are we doing? What should we do? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story, part four in our five-part series on the healthcare crisis dementia, and our aging population. Dr. Brian Goldman is a veteran emergency room physician, and he is the host of CBC Radio's The Dose, and he recently wrote a foreword for a landmark study produced by the Alzheimer's Society of Canada. Hello, Dr. Goldman. Hello, Jordan. Why don't you start maybe for the purposes of this conversation with kind of defining dementia? I think everybody probably associates it with Alzheimer's. Is that all there is to it? Is there more than that? Like, what is it? Dementia is a disorder of the brain that causes memory loss. It causes difficulties with attention, uh, problem solving, you know, what we call executive function, stuff that we take for granted, like planning your life, planning your, you know, your meals, your vacation, everything. Language changes in mood and behavior. Uh, it can cause issues with vision, uh, balance, mobility, and movement. And eventually, it affects more basic functions like the ability to swallow without swallowing food into your lungs, that is. Uh, the most common form, as you've said, uh, of dementia is Alzheimer's disease, but the second most common is called vascular dementia. It's caused by strokes. Less common types include Lewy body disease, which incorporates dementia with Parkinson's symptoms, and uh, another uh, type of dementia called frontotemporal dementia, which uh, affects speech, robs you of speech hmm. fairly early on in the disease. 
So currently, um, in Canada at least, if we know this, what percentage of people find themselves wrestling with some form of this as they age? Well, right now, uh, 8.4% of Canadians over the age of 65 have some form of dementia. Uh, keep in mind that we define young-onset dementia as dementia that where the symptoms begin before the age of 65, and a smaller percentage of people uh, uh, have symptoms of dementia below the age of 65. As we age, the percentage uh, goes up and up and up. And in fact, uh, by the time you get to age 85 and older, one in three of us have dementia. Wow. So tell me first, before we get into um, some of the details about the disease and what Canada is grappling with here, tell me about this landmark study. What did it seek to understand? Uh, Well, the study sought to create a snapshot of uh, the number of people who have dementia today. You know, right now we have about 600,000 people living in Canada who have dementia. So the study was trying to figure out how many of us will have dementia, not just today, but in 2030, 2040, and as far out as 2050, and what impact that will have on the people who love them, the close family members who take care of them, And more important, I think, well, that's important, but equally important, how living a healthier lifestyle might reduce the numbers or at least slow the impact of this tsunami of dementia, Mm -hmm. uh, the impact on the healthcare system and and on the people who love uh, those who have dementia. You mentioned a tsunami. What do we know uh, after this study about the scale of this problem in, say, 20, 30, 40, and 50? Well, it's immense. I've already said that 600,000 people are living in Canada right now who have dementia. By 2030, if nothing changes except that our population ages, we'll have close to a million with dementia. Mm. Uh, and, and we'll be acquiring new uh, people with dementia at the rate of 125,000 new cases per year. By the 2040s, more than a quarter of a million people will be developing dementia in, in Canada each year. And if you think about it, if we have 600,000 people who have dementia uh, who have dementia right now, can you imagine an extra 250,000 hmm. suddenly added to the system? Uh, by 2050, the number of people living with dementia will reach 1.7 million. Uh, and you know, if you're wondering why that number isn't higher based on what I just said, it's because dementia causes early demise. Right. So a lot of those people who develop dementia will, will die of it and, and often die of it within five or six or seven years. Uh, you've covered on on your radio show and podcast the state of the Canadian healthcare system. We've covered it on this show. To put it bluntly, is our healthcare system prepared for that scale of dementia patients? And and if not, just how unprepared are we? Well, I'll see your blunt with uh, with some more bluntness. We are largely unprepared to meet the needs of the thousands of Canadians who are going to be diagnosed with dementia over the next three decades. Hmm. We lack capacity, Jordan, at all stages of the disease. You know, we don't have enough facilities to provide an early diagnosis. You know, we, we heard uh, just in the last few days that we're going to be having, uh, you know, in provinces like Ontario, the great retirement of family doctors. It's family doctors and nurse practitioners who, who make the initial diagnosis in, in most cases. And, uh, you know, we're going to have more and more people who don't have a family doctor. So they're, I guess they're going to be showing up in the emergency department with dementia and we'll be the first people to have made that diagnosis. Uh, we lack memory clinics, which, uh, you know, the landmark study says we need more of them. Uh, clinics, you know, where we can provide evidence-based uh, advice on, on what to do about dementia and how to try to prevent it. 
thousands and thousands of Canadians depend on, will depend on home care. Home care is in crisis. Hmm. Uh, the system currently, Jordan, is telling clients that they qualify for, say, 16 or 18 hours a week, but the system can't provide those hours because there aren't enough personal support workers. Right. There aren't enough occupational therapists, speech and language pathologists, nurses. Uh, I can go on and on about care providers. There is currently a huge and growing deficit of long-term care beds. And some of, of what I'm talking about is the aftermath of COVID, but a lot of the crisis began far before the pandemic. Maybe we can unpack the kind of care these folks will need uh, a little bit. Let's start uh, with the diagnosis. What should people know about uh, symptoms to watch out for and, and how this is diagnosed? Well, the, the, the first thing, and usually it's close family members who are going to notice it, people uh, who who see you occasionally uh, in casual conversation may not pick it up because you know if the people who who have dementia in the early stages they can cover it up by by maintaining social graces and by volunteering information instead of waiting to be asked when they're asked stuff they may have trouble answering but if they can prepare stock answers they they may look and appear normal but caregivers you know the the people who love them know what's going on. Um, they will suddenly notice that uh, the person who did the finances in the family can no longer do them. The first discovery might be that bills that were ordinarily paid for quickly, promptly, on time, maybe even early, uh, are not paid at all. And suddenly uh, you owe three months on, on utilities that, that had never happened before. Um, you know, you might get comments, you know, in the case of a close family member of mine, I got comments from the friends uh, of, of this loved one saying, what's going on? She doesn't seem, she doesn't seem right these days. They will forget things that are are known to both members of you know of a couple um they might forget significant dates significant names of people so those are the kinds of things that they'll notice they might uh, also have perplexing moments when their behavior changes when they become agitated and angry and you don't know why and it's a sudden change in their personality um, you might notice that if they were fluent in language that they you know they had a, a a huge and varied vocabulary that it becomes constricted that they start talking they give stock answers to questions that they might have been you know more loquacious about um, right. so those are some of the initial symptoms to to look for the care that they need will really depend on the type of dementia and the stage. Certainly, Jordan, making the initial diagnosis is a shock to the family. And, you know, it's, it, it wouldn't surprise you if I told you that it can sometimes take months or a year or two to get a diagnosis, partly because of denial. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I, I mean, I, I've, I've had a lot of friends who've said that if there was a test for dementia, they wouldn't take it because they'll know soon enough. And, and who wants to know that they've got dementia? Well, I understand that uh, one of the reasons that you wrote the foreword for this and are, are championing this study is because you've cared for loved ones with dementia. Can you can you tell us about that if you're comfortable with it? Just you know what what should Canadians know and expect as their parents and and beloved elders age? Well, it, it's it's a lot, and you know I liken it to the beginning of a journey that, and you know we often talk about illness journeys and and. Uh, you know, some people don't like the term, but it's I, I'm referring to the kind of situation you land in um, when you have a loved one who has a serious long term disease like cancer or maybe you've got a family member, a close family member in trouble with the law or a massive lawsuit or a bankruptcy or something where it's where it's not going to be one and done. You can't undo it in in a second. It's going to change your life and change it for years. 
So, you know, I'm comfortable talking about my, my family because I think it's important that we share information about it. My sister and I helped our parents, our mother, uh, who passed away in 2016, had Alzheimer's. And my sister and I, you know, we hired caregivers and provided care for our parents. You know, we dealt with the private system. We dealt with the public system. Uh, my mother had Alzheimer's dementia. My, my late father cared for her at home for 15 years. And we think, my sister and I believe that our father kept our mother going uh, at a time when her level of dementia was, was profound and he kept mm. her at home for a long time and he boosted her level of function by being a constant companion to her. And he did it until uh, one day she was hospitalized with severe dehydration and he was read the riot act. You can either preside over her death or she can go into long-term care. Uh, so she went into long-term care and I can tell you it broke his heart. And, and six months later, he had his first heart attack at wow. the age of 89. And, and this happens uh, with, with, with the caregivers. And my mother-in-law went through a similar process with, with my father-in-law. Um, and by the way, my, my father never talked about all the personal care that he provided for my mom. At first, he was her social convener. He was her bookkeeper, he, her travel planner, and, adventure, and he occupational therapist took her on walks, made sure she kept active, brought her to day programs, and eventually provided uh, intimate personal care that, uh, you know, in retrospect, I'm amazed that he did it. He fed her. He did the kinds of things that people who have a loved one, a close loved one with dementia, will, will have to do. Um, more recently, my sister was diagnosed with dementia in the last five years. She, had, uh, she has a form of young-onset dementia, and I have become her essential family caregiver. What the landmark study refers to as a care provider. And at present, you know, she's living in long-term care. Uh, she is passing through a progression, uh, a predictable progression of, of dementia, where now she needs feeding. And in fact, I uh, sometimes feed her meals. I might feed her two or three meals a week. I've hired caregivers to do that. The long-term care uh, facility also provides caregivers who do that. You know, and, and I'm determined to, to visit her almost every day if I can. And uh, I, you know, I, adding it up right now, along with some of the guardianship power of attorney issues, I'm probably spending 20 to 25 hours a week. That's my, that's my new additional job in addition to all the other things, you know, being an eMERGE physician and yeah. hosting a podcast and uh, writing books and stuff. So you, you can imagine if it, it, you know, if it's raised my stress level, uh, you can understand, you know, uh, whenever I get a phone call from the facility saying, do you give permission to, uh, for your sister to get uh, the new COVID vaccine right. or, or, or a flu shot, my heart stops because she was admitted to hospital recently with aspiration pneumonia and nearly died. So I'm still getting over the trauma of that. So I, I'm, I'm sharing all that because there's an emotional uh, impact as well as a time commitment that, that's involved in this. That's really tough. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. You're right. It's tough. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. You mentioned uh, a little while ago that there is no real one-size-fits-all for uh, the progression of dementia. You know, will everyone with a loved one who is diagnosed eventually end up in that situation where they either need to move to a long-term care facility or have, you know, constant uh, personal intimate care? Or, or is this a spectrum that we're talking about? Well, there is a spectrum, Jordan, uh, and and you know the spectrum is is you know depends on the type of dementia. There's a tremendous degree of variation on on how quickly things progress. And I, you know I can give you my n of one 
uh, anecdotal experience or my N of three anecdotal experience, you know, our, my, you know, my mother, uh, had a trajectory of, of dementia that went on, you know, over 15 years, 18 or 19 years, which, which is, which is on the long end. Typically it's more like four or five, six, seven years. And, and yes, if a person with dementia lives long enough and, and doesn't die of pneumonia or, or, you know, sepsis or, or doesn't have a heart attack in the meantime, they will almost always require that intimate personal care that I've talked about where they need to be turned uh, in their bed, where they need to be fed, uh, where they need to be brought to the toilet or or toileted and turned so that they don't get pressure sores. And, and typically at the end stage, they may have difficulty swallowing and they're at risk of aspiration um, which which is often one of the causes of death. But, you know, dementia itself causes, you know, the brain functions to stop. And some of those brain functions are involved in things like making sure that you keep breathing. Uh, so, so you know, that's that's the spectrum. There isn't one size fits all. But, you know, if you are a caregiver, if you're an, a partner of someone with dementia, and it's t- I'm talking about partners because it's usually the partner that bears the brunt, Right. Um, you're going to be spending, you know, an average of 26 hours of, of per week uh, providing care. And, you know, that's part of a spectrum. I've met people who spend 14 hours a day mm. uh, providing providing care. Uh, and and what the landmark study found uh, is that the number of hours that are being provided today are equivalent to 235,000 full time jobs. That, wow. That's if you, you know, if if you're talking about a 40 hour per week uh, job with two weeks of vacation by 2050. Assuming that the increase in the number of people with dementia continues as predicted, the number of care partners living uh, uh, for people living with dementia would increase to over a million. And, uh, you know, until, you know, recently, the vast majority of care partners, as I've said, have been spouses. But the study predicts a large increase in the number of middle-aged people, ages 45 to 65, caring for people living with dementia. And, and clearly, a lot of them will be the children of baby boomers. So we've covered the upcoming scale of the problem. Uh, we've covered a little bit and could probably do an entire podcast episode on uh, all the kind of resources we don't yet have uh, in the healthcare system. One of the things you mentioned the study also sought to explain is how we can prevent this. So does this study take into account any mitigation measures? Do we know of any ways to stave off dementia or prevent it that we should be working with our partners or working with our parents on? There are, fortunately, ways to at least delay the onset of dementia uh, or the progression of dementia uh, things that have been shown to improve brain health. So being physically active each day and, and you don't, you know, I run uh, every other day, but you don't have to do that. You can go for a brisk walk, you can swim, you can, uh, you can rollerblade, you can ride, you can ride a bike, you can dance. Um, getting plenty of sleep is important. Being socially active and engaged, which means not withdrawing from your circle of friends, staying out there, going for, you know, those, those weekly or daily uh, coffees at Tim's, you know, doing activities that you enjoy and making sure to keep doing activities that, that uh, challenge you and trying to learn new things uh, as well. So not just doing, you know, Sudoku or Wordle, but, but you know, trying the newest puzzle game hmm. because that'll help engage you in new and different ways, learning a new language. <clears throat> there are medical things that you can do that are very important. Turns out, that getting good treatment for high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, other cardiovascular diseases is important. Quitting smoking, limiting alcohol are also helpful. 
And here's one that, you know, that don't wait too late. If you need, you know, you've been hearing, there've been lots of ads these days about hearing aids, about hearing aids that, that are available in the United States without a prescription. It's important if you have hearing loss associated with age, because using a hearing aid will help keep you engaged, right. uh, you know, paying attention to what's on the TV, also paying attention to casual conversation with friends and neighbors. That'll keep your brain active. And it turns out that the more of these things that you do, the better. If we can delay the onset of progression of dementia by just one year, that alone would reduce uh, by half a million the number of, of new cases of dementia by the year 2050. And if we could delay the onset of dementia by 10 years, over 4 million new cases of dementia would be prevented. And we would actually end up in 2050 with slightly fewer people with dementia living in Canada at that time compared to today. So that's, I mean, so address your health and, and, and that could make a massive difference on our society. What about treatments for dementia once it's diagnosed, aside from caregiving? You know, what kind of uh, medical help is available? Do we have any medications? We have a small number of medications, and uh, they have names like Aricept or Donipazil, Exelon or Rivastigmine, uh, Reminil or Galantamine. And then uh, the fourth medication is Abixa, which is also known as Memantine. The first three of the medications that I mentioned, Aricept, Exelon, and uh, Reminil, work by boosting memory, by boosting a brain chemical called acetylcholine. Abixa or Memantine helps stabilize the brain and prevent it from uh, uh, suffering further damage. And it works by preventing uh, an excess of a brain chemical that's not helpful. It's called glutamate. It's not particularly helpful to the brain. So those are the medications that are available. They're not great. Uh, they may improve your ability to follow conversations, may improve your memory uh, a bit, but they really don't pro, uh, stop the, the steady progression of, of dementia. That's the last thing I want to ask you is, where is the research on this? Where could a potential breakthrough come from? I know we recently saw President Biden in the United States uh, announced that he was taking on a moonshot on cancer with the hopes of drastically cutting or even eliminating it. Is that possible with dementia? Where could a kind of breakthrough come from? Well, you know, I'm going to, you know, I, I think there there are uh, some some other countries where there are some examples that might inspire us. You know, I visited Japan for my book, The Power of Kindness, because I wanted to, because, you know, Japan is all over robots. They love robots. Uh, they've created a lot of intriguing robots. And it turns out, that you know, Japan, which of course has the oldest population on the planet, it, they're looking at a huge and growing gap of caregivers, and and they have spent close to fifteen to twenty billion dollars, and they've described it as a moonshot that combines government money, private enterprise, and academia to develop robot caregivers or carebots. Now, mm. I'm not saying we should do the same; that that's that's what we're looking for when it comes to dementia. But that kind of combination of government money private enterprise and academia, all working together towards a common goal, probably shepherded by the government, could go a long way to kind of reorienting our research and trying to put things back on the right track. Uh, you know, I, I listened to the program you had not too long ago in which you talked about uh, that previously seminal study that was published in 2006 that apparently provided evidence for 
the treatment approach that many drug companies have been using, and that was that was to try to reduce the beta amyloid in the brain. And you know that 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 seminal study is now under a cloud of suspicion, and right. a lot of research was galvanized uh, as a result of that so-called seminal paper. So you know, I think right now. Uh, academia and uh, the pharmaceutical industry is taking a deep breath and, and trying to assess the damage there. And, and this may be an opportunity to reorient the research towards more promising results. One last question then, and it is about resources. We're constantly, uh, whether we should or not, making choices in Canada uh, in terms of priorities for funding the healthcare system. As an emergency room physician, as somebody who cares uh, deeply about this issue, if we had some money and investment to put towards dementia in the healthcare system, where would it go? Oh, I to me, hands down, home care. Uh, that's the place. We need to change home care. There's a Dutch model called Butzorg that is a terrific model that uh, that instead of providing vanilla one one size fits all care for for everybody regardless of their need actually has caregivers on the ground in your neighborhood assessing your needs and changing care based on exactly what you need it's a better system we should actually take money out of long-term care and put more money into home care if we do that then we will make things better and allow people with dementia to continue to live out their lives at home where they prefer to be with a lot less stress on the people who love them. Dr. Goldman, thank you for this and uh, really appreciate your time. I enjoyed speaking with you, Jordan. That was Dr. Brian Goldman, host of CBC Radio's The Dose, author of The Power of Teamwork, How We Can All Work Better Together, an emergency room physician, and the author of The Forward of that landmark study. That was The Big Story. For more in the previous three episodes in this series, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can talk to us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can, of course, always write us an email, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can even call us if you prefer and leave a message, 416-935-5935. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.